0: Hello, hello, and welcome to the Dream Bigger Podcast. I'm your host, Sif, and I'm the founder of Array. If you're new here, welcome. You can expect conversations with thought leaders and experts in different fields who will inspire you to live a more optimized life and dream bigger. Before we get into today's show, I wanted to ask you guys for a quick favor. If you enjoyed the show and feel like it's brought you value, I'd be so grateful if you left a review. It really helps the show grow so I can continue to bring on awesome guests. Today's interview is with Baba Rivera, an award-winning brand marketing professional, Forbes Under 30 alum, and founder of Clean Hair Care Brand Ceremonia, which was inspired by Baba's Latin heritage and the rituals she grew up with. I was actually on a panel with her a few weeks prior to this recording and fell in love with her energy. This episode is full of incredible tips for branding and entrepreneurship. I think you're going to learn a lot. I know I did, and you're going to be inspired by Baba's resilience, so let's get right into it.
1: Okay, so my first question for you is, tell me a little bit about your upbringing, because you have a really, really interesting background.
2: Yeah, um, I grew up in Sweden, which um, is, was amazing, um, but I grew up in a very Chilean household, and both my parents are from Chile, uh, which actually most people don't realize, because I, I feel very Swedish and very Chilean, so most people assume I, I'm sort of like half-half, but the reality is I'm actually 100% Chilean. I just happened to grow up in Sweden. Um, and my, my parents came to Sweden, not for pleasure really, uh, or really by choice. It was more so a necessity during the Pinochet Dictature. So they came to Sweden, you know, with the hopes of a better future. And they always thought that they would eventually move back to Chile when the dictatorship would be over. Um, and sort of go back to normal, which sounds very familiar with how we are operating right now with COVID. We're like, oh yeah, when this is all over, we will, you know, resume life. And I think their experience is a great reminder to me that there is no such thing as going back to normal because radical events have long lasting change. Um, And for my parents, when they later on returned back to Chile, I was three years old um, and we we lived in Chile for two years um, and that was sort of like how long they could take it until they realized that, like, who are they kidding? Like the country is not what it was before they left and maybe more importantly, they were not the same people anymore that they were when they left. So they decided to move back to Sweden and sort of give their kids the... A better shot um, at life. And uh, Sweden is, you know, a very, it's an interesting country because it's a very um, sort of like, it's a social democracy. And education is free. And it's like equality is very important. And it's a foundational value, and both gender equality and uh, social class equality. Um, so, you know, I went to school with kids who were way better off financially than, than my family was. And we still went to the same school and could be friends. Um, and, um, and I think that was very amazing. Um, but it was also challenging being the only Brown kid in school. Like I, I actually ended up in a neighborhood that was super white. and it was an initiative that the country had at the time where, I think it was, you know, an integration plan where they were testing to put immigrant families in these white neighborhoods and and sort of see if that helped with integration. And, Mm -hmm. um, and, and I don't know like what I think about it, because on one hand, I'm super grateful, because it made me, I think, dream bigger, I would go to my friends homes, and be like, Oh, I want to live like this one day, like, I don't want to live in a tiny apartment where we all share rooms like we do at my place. I want to have a house like that. I want to have a backyard. I want, You know, so like sometimes you have to see it to believe it. And and but at the same time, when you're a child, you don't realize you don't understand why some families get to live like that and why your family doesn't. So I think it was really hard for my parents having to Mm -hmm. have a lot of hard conversations with me where I would be like, but mom, why don't we live in a house like that? I think that would be better and she's like yeah yeah i, I agree <laughs> um so yeah it was an interesting upbringing from that perspective and then on a more sort of personal level i became sort of like my family's mm-hmm. gateway into swedish society because mm-hmm. i went to school with all these you know uh, white kids and i learned the language perfectly i learned the culture so I became the translator. I would you know, go to the bank with my family and translate and help them set up bank accounts when I was eight years old, which is wow. maybe not normal. Um, but what it did was that it really instilled an insane amount of confidence for me. And um, from an early age, I just believed in myself. I, like, that experience made me realize that it doesn't matter if I haven't done something before, I can learn. And having, like, knowing the language is, you know, the key to everything. So, um, yeah.
1: I feel like everything you're telling me, like, tells me a story of, like, who you are today which is like so independent so entrepreneurial and I feel like all of those experiences sort of like shaped you into becoming who you are because you're telling me right now that like even when you were little you'd go to these people's houses and think like oh yeah I can totally live there right like when I'm older that's where I'll stay and like I feel like you almost had it in you from when you were younger and having that confidence when you were eight years old to be a translator and understand a society which maybe you're Parents didn't understand as much as you because, you know, you were, you grew up there. It's really interesting.
2: Yeah, no, it's fascinating. I mean, as you grow older and now, you know, I just had my, my first child, you really start to like view your life from a different lens and you're like, oh, maybe that's why I am this way today. And you start to like unpack your, your past. And, and I think it's something that I think about a lot with, you know, being in a much more privileged position today than I was growing up. Mm-hmm. like how can I make sure that I'm giving my daughter uh, an equal opportunity to you know grow and learn and build confidence and, and feel like she can do anything and and, and sort of be independent and um, yeah I think sometimes that can be hard when you want to give your child everything that you didn't have and then you might end up spoiling them. So there's that balance that I'm yeah, trying to like, you know,
1: figure out. I can imagine. So you have had a really, really cool career trajectory. You were at Uber for a really long time and you you helped launch Uber in Stockholm as well, right? Tell me about yeah. your time at Uber. I
2: had the best time at Uber. Uh, it's like one of those... Uh, career experiences that I just like wish everyone had the opportunity to experience because it was unlike anything else. It didn't follow any playbooks. It did not follow any, you know, traditional steps. And, and I think, it's also worth pointing out that it's probably not for everyone. Like I, it was an extremely stressful environment. I don't, I don't think I was talking to my mom about it yesterday. I was like during my four years at Uber, I never celebrated Christmas or New Year's Eve because I was always working.
0: Wow. And it,
2: w- it was 24 seven. And those were our peak, like the holiday season was a peak season for Uber. And I was doing customer support. I was doing Twitter. I was, you know, I was doing everything. And, um, you know, I, I I'm just lucky that I, Had, at the time, boyfriend, now a husband who was on for the ride and be like, okay, well, you know, rent a nice Airbnb and sit and work during New Year's Eve. So, but long story short, Uber was extremely intense. It was definitely life on the fast line, um, but it was also so rewarding. I learned so much. I felt appreciated. I felt seen. I felt like I was... As much as I was giving in, I was also getting back, and I was being invested in, and I think that is a big difference um, between working hard at a company where you feel like you're growing versus working hard at a company where you feel like you're being taken advantage of, Um, and and that's a very fundamental like difference. Um, So that's why I always talk about.
1: You were there when Uber was actually still a startup, right? Technically a startup, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah, when I joined Uber, they had, okay, so to put it in perspective, when I joined Uber, there were 120 employees worldwide. Oh my God. And when I left, we were (laughs) 12,000. Wow, and this is not drivers or anything like that. Just for people. To, yeah, to yeah, into, of course. This is just headquarters, um, like corporate, um, and so that's you know an insane journey to be part of in four years, grow from one hundred twenty people to twelve thousand. And when I joined Uber, they had just started to you know think about Europe. They had previously only been focused on the U.S. Um, and only like urban capital, like big cities, um, and and they hired me to help launch in Stockholm and after having just launched in London and Paris and they weren't particularly successful in either London or Paris yet so there was still a lot to figure out with internationalization so it was really exciting for me to be part of that journey where there was not a playbook yet we were sort of still writing it
1: (laughs) yeah I bet um so you were you were i guess like in the the branding and marketing sort of department. Um what was your biggest takeaway from that role of yours?
2: So I think what was interesting was that because I was launching Uber in a new market, departments were not really a thing. <laughs> we were a team of two. Uh it was myself and martin who is still a very good friend of mine and um, we basically became like brothers and sisters during that time uh, and he was doing everything on the supply side and i was doing everything on the demand side like that's how we divided quote-unquote departments um and um yeah what that meant it was for me it meant everything from customer service to twitter social media to partnerships events business development branding photo shoots like you name it uh, corporate deals everything that would drive demand um, and and marketing was doing everything that would make sure we had supply. So background checks of drivers, like onboarding drivers, quality control, customer service for drivers. And so I, I had to learn, it was a very entrepreneurial experience because I couldn't be specialized in anything. I had to know a little bit about everything. Um, and those are really qualities that I have taken with me today in my entrepreneurial uh, journey um, to have that to be able to jump in everywhere but not get too bogged down with the details anywhere uh, and when any department is growing to a point where it needs more complexity you hire the right person for it you don't get sort of stuck there yourself um, and and that's an amazing school for entrepreneurship
1: yeah, but it actually does sound like a crash course in entrepreneurship and like it's really cool that you got to do it at a company like Uber before it sort of blew up into this huge thing. So that's super cool.
2: Yeah, and that's eventually how I ended up in in the US because I so I joined Uber in Sweden uh, to launch the the service there and then after having a really successful launch there, we actually Sweden became ironically the fastest growing market for Uber at the time. Um, it was just doing really, really well. And obviously, part of that was my work. But also part of it was just the market, like really high iPhone penetration, people having really high speed internets on their phones, and which was not the case everywhere in Europe. Um, So that eventually led to a relocation to New York, where um, I had sort of become a little bit of a little bit known inside the company, despite being in this like satellite office in the weird country of Sweden. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I think it w- it was nice that it was such a data driven company where the numbers were speaking for themselves, and that made it possible for these random Swedes to eventually relocate to New York.
1: Um, from your from your like I guess like the, the the kind of projects you took on while you were there, are there any that you feel like you really remember, or from a data perspective, kind of gave you the the biggest, I guess, had the biggest impact rather?
2: I mean, it was so many things because what worked during a certain time of the company's maturity did not work at a later stage, you know, and I think that's what's so exciting to be in business is that it's a constant learning and especially when you are working in a company where you are data driven and you're tracking metrics and uh, it can become a little obsessive. Like I definitely became a little bit like borderline workaholic where I would go to bed with our dashboard <laughs> and be just like, Oh my God, the campaign we did look at this for like the email we sent just had an immediate boost or we would have low numbers a day and I would sit there and be like, okay, what can we do today? Uh, and, and I think the, the mindset of thinking fast and slow uh, at the same time was definitely um, one of the biggest gifts um, to learn to optimize. Like th- I think sometimes people are either very reactive and they're only working in like the today uh, hamster wheel, or they're too strategic and they're always thinking about oh, but the right way to do it would be to relaunch our whole thing, or you know, and they think mm-hmm. in like too complex terms. And then nothing happens today. Uh, And I think at Uber, we were forced to think like short term and long term, like intertwined. Um, But some of the most fun campaigns that we did, I think, in New York was when we started to like incorporate the on-demand experience into other uh, categories. So for Fashion Week, for instance, we... Uh, wanted to democratize the fashion week experience, just like we had democratized the private driver experience. Mm -hmm. So we teamed up with a couple of shows um, at New York fashion week and opened them up for the public through the Uber app. So people were able to open up their Uber app during New York fashion week and try to like claim a spot at the rag and bone show. And, And yeah, and that was so fun. Like, you know, it exploded. Like we got so much PR and people were, testing and testing to tap that app. And the only way you would it was almost like a game because the way you would win a ticket to the show was that one of the rag and bone cars would be available close to you at the time of request. And they were obviously in really high demand. So it became this like gamified experience. That is
1: really cool. (laughs) So, from there, you you moved on to Away. Tell me about that transition. Like, what was that whole thing like? What made you decide to move? Like, yeah, tell me everything.
2: When I relocated to Away, that was... I had been at Uber for four years at the time. And I was starting to feel a little bit stuck in my role. Like, Uber had been this insane, like... Life on the highway type of experience where I was constantly having to figure out new things, reinvent myself, step into bigger shoes like every week. And then it came to a point where it was becoming a little corporate. You know, we were 12,000 employees and there were a lot of processes and politics and um, backstabbing. Like it was just like, big company at that time. And I realized that that was not as fulfilling for me. I didn't feel like I had that same, you know, energy and drive. And I started to feel like I had hit multiple glass ceilings. And, and I think in a way, that was good, because otherwise, maybe I would have stayed there for too long, like Mm. four years was an amazing amount of time, especially when you're working at that Pace. I think four years at Uber probably equals 10 years anywhere else. Um, and um, so I started to just, you know, feel a little ready to maybe think about my next step. And simultaneously, I ran into Jen Rubio at a conference where we were both speaking. Away hadn't launched yet. She was basically speaking about her experience at Warby Parker and then sort of hinting about her next project. And I was speaking about Uber and we became friends and just started, you know, hanging out. And she told me about a way that she was going to start this company with Steph and uh, they were looking for a director of brand marketing. And it was such a hard role to hire because Jen is a creative visionary and like, how can she find someone who can really translate her vision into action and someone she can trust. And so I was trying to help her hire for the role. Uh, and I think I was trying I was sending her like candidates and you know people I think for like six months (laughs) until she was basically just like confronted me one day she's like can't you just realize that I'm just trying to hire you? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> stop sending me candidates. Why don't you just just join us already? She's like, you're not happy at Uber. I know it for a fact. Since she was my friend, she sort of knew what I was going through, and she's like, just come over here. And um, so I started the interview process, and uh, you know, interviewed with Steph, uh, who eventually became my my boss. And um, and yeah, I I just felt super excited to embark on a new chapter of building again. I, I am a builder. I, I love to see things come to fruition and, um, and decided to leave Uber, which at the time was this really cool company uh, to join this very unknown little startup claiming to sell suitcases. Like what? <laughs> uh, and and I, I say that because it's important to remember that when I joined both Uber and Away, they were not the shit. They were not unicorn brands. They were not, you know, the founders were not on the Forbes list or whatever. Like, these were just very unknown companies. And truth be told, most of my friends thought I was really weird for making that move. Um, and And I think when you just feel something in your intuition, like, like that's really when you need to listen to yourself and not anyone around you. Like, yeah, I think there was this like really weird article in Sweden about Baba leaves her top job at Uber to sell suitcases. And I was like, you guys are really not getting it. And, and that's part of being on a building journey is that most people will not get it. And, and that's, what's exciting because you get to prove them wrong. And I think that really sort of like fuels my fire. Uh, so it was very similar when I later on left away to start my own company. People were like, why are you leaving this like unicorn brand? Like everyone wants to partner with away. It's like doing all these cool collabs and you're going to go and start a little agency with your own name on it and be like a one woman show. And I was like, obviously I'm not planning to be a one woman show forever. Like Mm -hmm. I have to start somewhere. And, but eventually it turned into an agency with two offices and a team of 15. Um, And then people thought I was crazy for folding the agency to start Ceremonia. Like that's just how it goes.
1: I think it's really interesting, like you, I feel like you have your finger on the pulse because you joined Uber when it was still a startup and it blew up into this huge company and then you, the same thing happened with Away and then you, you left Away to start your own agency, which also did extremely well. So I like, I think you have like a sixth sense. (laughs) (laughs) Or I have a mom that
2: constantly prays for me. Oh my mom is like we we joke about it internally at at the company today. Where whenever we need something, we're like, okay, let's make sure Baba's mom is praying for us. She has like <laughs> some sixth power. Like she superpowers. She's, yeah, she's definitely our our
1: fairy godmother. <laughs> That's so sweet. So you know you were at Away as a brand director, and from a brand marketing standpoint, I think like from when you were at Away, like it was just this like you know startup, and then it became this brand that everyone knows like you can't not know what away is so do you have like i don't know like i guess a couple of specific tips that you can give new startups who can maybe learn from away yeah i mean
2: yes and no there there's so many factors and i think um one thing that i definitely realized is that to build an iconic brand like that and you really have to have smart people in every department Like you can't just build a strong brand if you don't have a good supply chain or if you don't have a good product or if your customer service doesn't work. Like it really is like that's ultimately the challenge and Mm -hmm. that as a founder, you can't just figure out one thing. Like you can't just have a good product or just have a good brand. you, You have to figure out the whole like formula and and that is a lifelong quest you know otherwise every company that ever launched would be super successful if that was easy um so you know i obviously do take credit for contributing to building an amazing brand but it's it definitely takes a village and it's um it's a team effort with every department needing to be excellent um and i think that's what's so exciting with building ceremonia today is that you are only, as a founder, you're only as good as your team is. And I really think of my role as someone who has to provide that sort of like vision and confidence, like, and and try to help my team see not where we are today, but where we're heading. Like that's ultimately a founder's job is to help people see the bigger picture um, and instill that inspiration um, so that they can then go out and build, put the building blocks that are needed today to get to that big vision that is of tomorrow.
1: Yeah, I love that. So like from a way, why did you decide to launch your own agency? Like, did you just feel like you kind of had this knack for building these brands from the ground up and you kind of wanted to do it for yourself as well?
2: Uh, So it's a twofolded answer, like on from a business standpoint, I felt like there was an amazing opportunity in the market at the time. And we were so frustrated with many of our agencies. And it just like, it was just crazy to me how we were paying monthly to work with someone and be unhappy. Like that doesn't make any sense. Like if Mm -hmm. you are unhappy with um, a store, you don't continue to go there every day. Like That's not how it works. (laughs) That's not market economy. Uh, So I kept asking myself, how come that we, you know, stick around with these agencies, despite being so unhappy? Um, And what, what, what's broken about it? And I realized that most agency models were created with a different consumer in mind, they were created for these, you know, big box companies like L'Oreal's, or, you know, like these old school traditional companies where you are rewarded for moving paper. Mm-hmm. and at away we were basically operating like a tech company where we are like we're measured on results <laughs> you know no one is getting a for effort uh so i i figured that there was an opportunity for an agency model that was more startup oriented fast paced nimble had more of like a testing approach um versus a copy paste offer that they would offer everyone um and on a personal level, I I knew since I was like eight years old that I wanted to be my own boss. Like that's something that I knew from the get go. I just got sidetracked basically because I just had so much fun at Uber and it felt very much like an entrepreneurial journey. So I almost forgot about my dream of becoming an entrepreneur because I, I felt like an entrepreneur within the company. Mm-hmm. And I think that... I I realized that when I came to a way which was not entrepreneurial, and like despite being a very early stage company, it was very much like top down and um, there is a right way and there is a wrong way. And it was just I really just started to feel much more like an employee. Um, And I realized that that doesn't make me happy. And that's not how I create my best work. And I can do it because I'm ambitious. And I'm a good girl. But that's not ultimately what how I want to live my life. Um, So it was sort of like this, you know, market opportunity and personal desire to break into the entrepreneurial space.
1: What was that process like starting your own agency from scratch?
2: Um, It was very scary because I hadn't planned for it. Like I, I didn't join away thinking I would, you know, be leaving just a year later to start my own agency. So I hadn't saved for it. I hadn't, you know... I don't know, networked for it. I had, you know, just been pouring my everything into my work and I had spent all my savings in buying out my stock options from Uber when I left. So a bank account of zero and a work visa tied to my current employer made the jump very I know in retrospect, I'm like, how did I find the courage to do that? Because that, that's not rational. Like, uh, it was extremely stressful. And I basically just put all my savings into sponsoring my own visa and, um, and then stole my husband's travel computer, <laughs> his laptop. <laughs> and, uh, and I literally had it for like, I think I replaced it like six months ago. Like I, oh my I had God. it throughout the entire <laughs> oh year. That's so funny. You know I because I, honestly, just going to Apple and buy a laptop was out of question, like that was just like not within my budget, and I basically had like runway or like run rates for like two months, like I could see myself paying my bills for two months um And by paying my bills, I basically just mean like my own expenses because Mm -hmm. I was basically like looking at my husband, I was like, okay, so you pay rent for two months and (laughs) I, you know, will contribute with food and whatever, but I basically have two months to turn this around. Um, and I think as scary as that sounds, and when I put it into words like this, I'm like, what was I thinking? That's insane. Uh, But I think I was just so driven by this desire that my current situation is like, it's not the situation I want. And the only way to change it is to take action. And like, the easy way out is to just seek for another job that will serve everything for you. But because my desire wasn't changing jobs, it was to build my own like design my own work. Um, I, I just had to follow that gut instinct and, um, the first steps that I took was to go into my immediate network and be pretty open about, you know, there's always this balance when you're consulting and I'm sure anyone listening to this who is a freelancer can, can relate to it. You... Want to be vulnerable, open about your situation so people can help you and know how to help you, but you also don't want to sell yourself short or make it sound like no one wants your services because mm-hmm. the reality is people want what they can't get, and you know. So it's like this, like balance that you have to strike. So I went into my closest network and told them I'm leaving away to start my own brand marketing agency. Here are the things that I did at Away and this past year, and this is like what I'm, how I'm translating that into my agency model if you or anyone you know might be in like search for some of these uh, services, please don't hesitate to reach out to me or send an intro uh, like coffee on me. I'm, you know, here ready to to network and, and help mm-hmm. however I can. So, you know, I, I put it out there and it was very scary. And, and I received so many amazing introductions from my network and um, I scored my first client from, basically a friend, who I didn't even know needed help. And then that became, you know, my first case study. And then that leads to the next. So Mm -hmm. I think it's just about scoring that first case that you can talk about. And yeah, (laughs) I can go on forever about consulting.
1: It's, it's so interesting that you were saying that, like, that step to kind of leave your job to start a business. No, it wasn't logical, but I think that people who are entrepreneurial often aren't logical because they leave comfort to take that bet on themselves. And like, I know I've been there as well, where like, you know, I've left my job first to start my blog and then I kind of like let my blog slide to put more effort into Array. And like, you know what I mean? So, so you do these things. Like my husband just left his tech job to work on Array full time. So I feel like that's sort of what entrepreneurs do. It's not logical from the outside, but if you go back, you'd probably do the same thing again.
2: Yeah, totally. And it's like, I'm so grateful for it. And, and I think sometimes it's, it's hard to give people advice because there are no guarantees. Like that's, the, yeah. that's why not everyone does it. And, and that's why I can't tell people that these are the steps and this will, is what will happen because the whole point of it is that there are no guarantees
1: and you have to figure it out as you go. Yeah, for sure. So you have worked with so many brands and all kinds of different marketing initiatives. What, like, could you share maybe like two to three brand marketing tips for new businesses?
2: Yeah, um, I am. Hmm. So I think partnering with other like-minded brands is sometimes underest, like underrated. And I have found that pairing your brand with other brands that are doing similar things can be so mutually beneficial. And um, you know, you're sharing customer base, and so you're getting access to the, your brand partners, customer base, they're getting access to yours. And simultaneously you're just associating yourself with another brand that already has certain values. And mm-hmm. by just being next to them, you're creating that perception that you guys are sort of the same. Uh, so I think brand collaborations are extremely powerful. I also, you know, think influencer marketing is still extremely, extremely relevant. Uh, I know there has been uh, influencer fatigue and and whatnot and I when I say influencer marketing I I don't mean going after you know the bikini girls with a million followers who you know might never see your dm like I, I I think you can do influencer marketing that is very grassroots and like go after people who you really think will resonate with your product and talk to them like you would talk to a friend and yeah. um, like, I think uh, more often than not, brands lack that personal touch. And I think that is the opportunity that we have as small business owners is that we can do the things that don't scale because we're small and we can be personal because we are real people behind this brand. Whereas it's hard for a L'Oreal to go out and be like, hey, you know, like, what are they? There's no personality behind that brand yeah. because yeah. there's no clear founder. So I think that's your unique opportunity as a small brand is that you can be personal. Uh, and then the last thing I would say is community. I think community keeps being forgotten about. I think brands tend to, you know, try to get the celebrities attention, try to get all the influencers and all the PR and they forget about their customers and they're ultimately the foundation of your company. And they're the ones that are keeping you in business. So um, we, we have an insider community and we give our customers free access, special deals. Like we we just activate our community all the time and treat them with like VIP service and they actually get access to products even before our influencers.
1: Honestly, that's the smart thing to do though. Like we say the same thing like for us, like I've always said that our customers are influencers because they they tell everyone about it. So like I remember for us, like, I mean, you know, you get PR packages, and there's always like a really personal touch. And for me, I remember when I started blogging, like this, was, this was something that I'd like, I don't know, it would always really excite me. So I was like, you know, how can we bring that to our community? And so then we started doing that Polaroid. And that's I been- love your Polaroids.
2: <laughs> that's such a cute touch. And it's so unique. And it really makes the custom order feel like, an influencer seating or like, uh, you know, and and that's, and that's, you know, so special and especially for someone who's not receiving
1: 300 packages a day. For sure. Exactly. So like, you know, we, like, I think what you're saying is so true, like, you know, treating your customers like VIP, it's something that small brands can do. And I think that it's something that, you know, everyone should be doing. So I, I really, really like these tips. So now you have ceremonia. Um, Talk to me about it. What made you decide to start it? Like, I want to know everything.
2: <laughs> yeah, uh, ceremonia is really my, my life's work. Um, I, so I am a Swedish Latina, like I said, and I grew up in a very, you know, white society. Um, so I just never saw myself represented. And, you know, and, and I say that not just in terms of like media or, I don't know, billboards. Like, I just didn't see myself even amongst my friends um and and especially in beauty like um, all the beauty products we would end up consuming were were not created with me in mind or were not celebrating my hair type or skin color um but I would I was still buying them because there was nothing else basically um and so that's sort of like one thing that has been nagging on me as i you know grown older and then in my experience as a founder of a brand marketing agency working with all these you know modern d2c brands it sort of i sort of realized how crazy it is that all these brands that i'm working with are all founded by mainly white founders and they're all targeting the same demographic which is basically the white millennial and and it just like i just realized how i'm sitting here today with all this knowledge and experience and this privilege that i have acquired over the course of my career and i'm using it to reinstill the status quo like i'm i'm, I'm not driving any change by just serving more white founders to serve more white millennials um and And I just started to wonder where are all the people like me, like just out of curiosity, like where are the founders that are brown and where are the customers? And so I started just researching a lot about the Hispanic consumer in the U S and it was just so empowering to see the numbers, you know, the Hispanic community accounts for 20% of the U S population that's one in five. Like that's, it's the biggest minority in the U S. And what's really exciting is that the Hispanic demographic is also one of the youngest ones. Um, Mm And so the median age amongst Hispanics is 27. And when you look at the beauty category, the Hispanic demographic is driving that category. We're building up the beauty segment in America Um. Hispanic women spend forty six percent more on hair care products than non-Hispanics.
0: Wow. So like all
2: these numbers, and I'm looking at the aisle of like beauty brands and I'm like, where like how come that we are building this category and there is no representation of us? Mm-hmm. Um so it it sort of just had me think about my own Latin roots and how I have been neglecting my Latinidad for so long. And I have felt ashamed about my parents speaking Spanish to me. I felt ashamed about my culture. And I realized that if I don't own my heritage, then who is going to do that? And how am I expecting my daughter to be proud of her roots if her mother is not, you know? Um, So I've been on this, you know, personal journey of, we, I don't know, coming into my own self um, mm-hmm. unapologetically, and then from a business standpoint, there is just a huge lack for clean hair care. I have been on a journey to switch out all of my, you know, beauty rituals uh, to to clean ones, and I have successfully done so in the wellness space, in skincare. Even my detergent is clean. But my freaking hair care products were not. <laughs> uh, so I just felt like there's so much to do here, and the Hispanic or the Latin culture has so many amazing rituals that I grew up with, and amazing ingredients. Like my aunt would put avocado in her hair, and you know, mm-hmm. do all the aloe vera and do all these home remedies. So that sort of sparked the desire to create something that i feel like my younger self would have been proud of and that i could have like that i wish was around when i was a kid and i could have looked up to um and that's how ceremonia was born and it's a clean hair care brand that's really here to celebrate the richness of the latin culture um and i think what's fascinating is that our products are for all hair types. Like there's no such thing as Latin hair type. You know, Mm -hmm. Latinas have Afro, they are blonde, they are brunette, they're wavy, they're thin-haired. Like we sort of fill the spectrum. So our products are for all hair types. And that means that non-Latinos are also buying our products. But what's special is that we're using our brand and our platform to celebrate the richness of the Latin culture we source all of our natural ingredients from different countries in Latin America we cast latina models we work with latina stylists and photographers you know so it's like it's a very mission driven brand from that perspective
1: i love that and i think that it nowadays I feel like the brand almost has to have a story because I think people like, especially in 2020, I think that there was just such a shift and people wanted more, like they wanted actual meaning behind brands. And I think that it's so relevant what you're doing and I think it's incredible.
2: Yeah, no, we, we have been, it's been so well received. And I think that just speaks volumes for how needed it's been. And it's needed on two sides, like on, on one. end, it's the story, like you're talking about the, the Latin community just wants to see themselves represented. That's not so much to ask for. Yeah. And on a product standpoint, I think we're hitting a point where we're just sick of masking our hairs and trying to make our hair be something it's not. I'm tired of straightening my hair. I'm tired of toxic hairsprays. So I wanted to create a brand that was more like skincare for my hair.
1: products that really
2: nourish my hair and make it actually healthier and better.
1: I love that. So I know like, you know, we were just, we kind of touched on this. There just isn't a ton of education around clean hair care. I feel like it's one of those areas that are totally lacking. And I know we talked a little bit about this during the panel discussion that you, you had, which I, which I loved. So for our listeners, what are the type of ingredients that they should be avoiding when it comes to hair care?
2: yeah so if you're trying to combat frizz which i feel like most <laughs> women are you really should try to stay away from sulfates um, and um you will see some you know brands popping up now being sulfate and paraben free uh, that's great i think that's the baseline what most brands are still including in their products though is silicones and that's something that's not talked about as much and just for for people who are not familiar with silicones silicones is a plastic and uh, so it basically means that your product has plastics in it and what it does is that it sort of creates a coat around your hair to give the illusion of shine so when the light hits the plastic coat plastic. on your hair it, it looks shiny because plastic is shiny um, but it's not actually making your hair shine it's just giving the illusion of shine um, and, and and what's annoying with with silicones is that they they sort of like create this coat around your hair so it's it's harder to get nutrients into your hair and um, when you wash wash it off it's not biodegradable so it's up in our landfills and it also makes your hair dirtier like it actually attracts dirt so it like it just you might feel like you need to wash your hair more often it weighs it down uh, and it more importantly doesn't do anything for your hair besides masking mm-hmm. it so I, I am a huge sort of advocate for silicone free and I know it's hard because there just hasn't been a lot of brands focusing on that and um, you can feel confident that anything we will ever launch will be silicone free and um, and obviously sulfate and paraben free um and I think if you stay away from, from those um, ingredients, you will start to see how you're actually able to reboot your hair. I love it. Start masking
1: it. Yeah. So tell me about the hair oil that you guys have. Like, why is it so special? Because, and also on a side note, your hair is like incredible.
2: Oh, thank you. Well, I don't feel like it's super incredible. I'm like in postpartum, uh, you know, I, I had my baby three and a half months ago. This is like peak horrible <laughs> times, but I do feel like I've been combating it, like it would be so dull if it wasn't for the aceite de mosca that we launched. Um, so um, this is the aceite de mosca. It's, um, it's basically, internally we call it a miracle oil because it does so much for your hair. The main use case is to apply it directly on the scalp, and it works as like a scalp remedy. And and it helps to remove excess oils without stripping away your natural oils. And it helps to remove product buildup. So if you use dry shampoo, all of that is ending up on your scalp. And what it does is that it clogs your pores, which hinders your hair from growing and it hinders your follicles to uh, bloom. So taking care of your scalp is basically the number one recipe to good hair um, and the aceite de mosca is the most sort of like soothing and effective way to do that um it also works great on your ends um i sometimes just apply it as a leave on on my dry ends and it helps to um, to repair it and most people have reported that already after the first use of the aceite de mosca they feel like their hair is naturally shiny softer feels detangled and uh, some actually feel like they don't even have to use conditioner because after like once you put it on your scalp and you then put shampoo on to wash it off your hair is already soft and tangled um yeah it's it's a miracle oil it just really reboots your hair and it also helps promote hair growth and makes
1: your your hair thicker and fuller yeah i i, I swear by it <laughs> that's incredible i i have to try it like I like it for the, for the last little while, especially, I think since we've gone into quarantine, I've just kind of had like my hair tied up and I feel like it would like oils I love for like, just like a slicked back look. So I I have to try it.
2: (laughs) Yeah, no. And it's nice because it works both as a treatment and as a leave-in oil. Um, So yeah, I, and what's nice about it is that it's packed with nutrient rich ingredients. So it's not just making your hair feel good. It's actually repairing it. Also, uh, it has eight active ingredients.
1: Yeah. What are the, I was going to ask you, like, can we, can we get a little nerdy in terms of like the specific ingredients?
2: <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, some
1: of the ones that I think would make
2: the most sense for people uh, is castor oil, which helps mm-hmm. with um, hair growth. Um, we have chia seed oil in there, babassu uh, babasu oil, patua oil, a lot of these you m- people might not have heard of because they're very sort of native to latin america mm-hmm. and are are less known but extremely beneficial for things like um what, like hydration retention and repair and soothing the scalp um another good one is aloe vera which people might be more uh, familiar with also um and we go we send all of our products for rift testing which that's a little nerdy but Mm -hmm. basically what it means is that we test it on like a third party test our products uh, to make sure that they are non-irritating and uh, non-allergenic they don't cause any uh, allergies or irritations and so we have had people with itchy scalps and sensitive scalps Feeling like they've tried everything under the sun and nothing works. And then they try a to stay to the mosque together with our scalp massager. And it
1: has finally like rebooted their scalp. Um, Very cool. Okay. So I have one last question for you. So, say a brand founder comes to you and asks which area of marketing they should spend their money to see the greatest results, what would you advise them?
2: Well, it depends on a lot of things. Uh, But I actually, there is no universal answer. But what works for us has definitely been a combination of PR and paid marketing. Um, And, you know, paid is one of those things that's really hard to crack. And it's something that you have to constantly work on to perfect. Like, you can't just put a bunch of money and expect magic to happen. Like, it's something that you have to train um, and and get knowledge over time with, Um, but um, like Google search paid um, ads, um, Instagram ads has also worked really well. I think those are very like generic (laughs) advice, but it actually has made a huge impact for us to sort of convert hype into transactions.
1: You know what, though, it like I think being in it, it feels like an obvious answer. But before we started Array, we didn't know that it was going to be such a big driver, right? And it's like, as like a new business owner, you don't know that. So I think it's a great answer.
2: Yeah, and I think sometimes you're like, oh, I don't want to be doing ads, like as if that's like a dirty thing. But the reality is that when you're in the early stages and you are not spending a ton of money, most of the money that your ads like most of your ad spend is going towards people who have heard of you already but haven't pulled the trigger yet yeah uh, so it's it's not just a random ad that a random person is seeing like it's it you can target it very well and and really sort of help convert those people that are walking around thinking about your brand but haven't sort of yet given it given it a shot
1: yeah for sure and like i mean they say that what you need a customer needs seven interactions with your brand to actually pull the trigger so this is one of them yeah exactly Oh, that's where
2: influencer marketing and community comes in too
1: yeah seriously two such important things even for us like i always say like those are i mean like for for me i do like that's my realm and niche is more on the paid ad side and i always say like from what what i've seen like community and um influencers are incredibly important yeah okay baba thank you for being here tell everyone where they can find you instagram website all of that
2: yeah so my instagram is just ad baba b-a-b-b-a and uh, website is uh, ceremonia.com
1: amazing thank
2: you thank you